Hey, good, mor- good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, you guys should have a handout. If you don't, it's on, on the back table there. Uh, we can just start by uh, opening up your Bibles and turning them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Give everyone a second there. Hope we're having a good morning. All right, so when you turn to chapter 1, the section we're going to be looking at today is verses 22 to 25. Give you a minute to turn there. All right, picking up where we left off last week, verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born, again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So um, recently, I ran in an obstacle course race called the Rugged Maniac. And uh, if any of you want to join, we're doing it again next year. You can talk to me about signups. But anyways, I, I learned a lot of things during this process um, about myself. One of them is that oversized people like myself shouldn't do too much long-distance running. It's very hard on the knees. But anyways, the whole goal of this race is to finish. That's it. They even give you a shirt that says finisher on the back. Um, but something that's interesting, after the race, I looked around, and it was in Castaic, uh, Los Angeles area, very beautiful. I noticed there's all these mountains, and even the obstacles look beautiful. There's this nice lake, and you really don't notice those things during the race itself uh, because your whole goal is just to finish. That's it. You're trying to finish the whole time. And it's too often that when we're reading our Bibles— when we open them up, when we're, when we're reading through them, that this is how we view the task of reading Scripture. We are just like, I just need to finish, right? I'm just, I'm just getting through it. And one of the joys of teaching God's Word like this with you right now, or really in any capacity, is that it, it requires me to take so much time that I really get to enjoy God's Word. And it's always just a reminder that it's worth taking the time. It's worth taking the time to slow down to understand the word, to understand what you're reading. Uh, and in light of that, let's pray as we look at God's word this morning that we, would, that we would do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us who you are in this text. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gospel. Please help us to sit under the authority of your word, the word that is imperishable and purifies the soul. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as Peter continues, he's addressing a suffering group of Christians. That's there's there's a lot of suffering in this in this section. And they're suffering because they have refused to join in the idolatry of the pagan culture that they live in. Uh, later on, chapter 4 paints a very vivid picture of this. But as we, as we look at the end of chapter 1 this morning, Peter is continuing to describe the life of someone 
who has salvation. He's saying, you are saved, and this, these are the results. This is how you live. This is your relationship with God in light of that. This is your relationship with people in light of the fact that you have been saved. You're someone who has believed the gospel. So the reason why you're your handout, right? You look at it, it says gospel, 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 right? That's not just because I, you know, I thought it would be a, a clever or fun idea. It's because as we're looking at this text, and if you look down with me, uh, this section refers to the gospel several times in different ways. Uh, in verse 22, it says, obedience to the truth and abiding word of God in verse 23 word of the Lord and good news in verse 25. All of these are anchored in the gospel, and all of them closely relate to the main command in the middle of this section, which is to love one another. That's why this is called a gospel-centered love. And Peter is, is moving from talking about the vertical relationship between God and man to how Christians ought to relate to each other, to their horizontal relationship. And it's a love that's rooted in the transformative work of the gospel. And throughout the text, we see different ways that the gospel relates to the Christian's command to love one another. First, and this is the, the first point on your handout there, uh, this is verse 22a, first part of verse 22. The gospel purifies the soul. The gospel purifies the soul. It says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. First of all, when something needs purification, it's not a good thing. Uh, when the person, I, I'm sure maybe you've had it, they come to your house and they try to sell you the $1,700 water filtration system and they offer you a gift card, all of that, right? Their main goal is to show you that the water is not pure because pure, unpure water, truly unpure water, is a very bad thing. Uh, if our water is not pure or it was poisoned or contaminated, I mean, we could literally die. So them being unpure to start, not a good thing, but the gospel has purified their souls. Peter is reminding these believers of this truth. And when he says soul here, this refers to uh, the inner life, the self-consciousness, uh, that, that part of you that no one else sees. And Christ's atoning work on the cross purifies the soul of the believer. And we just need to remember, apart from the gospel, we are not pure. If Christ has been received as Lord and Savior, there will be a dramatic change. A, a term that I love, and I've used several times, is gospel transformation. This is how people change. This is how patterns of sin are broken and our hearts get softened. It's not for, from our own wisdom or, or from our excellent counsel, but from the transformative work of the gospel. Because if someone is, is drawn into a relationship with a holy God, of course this will purify the soul. And this is also the basis on which we are able to love. But not just any kind of love. If we look down at the text, it says a sincere and brotherly love. Now we, we should be clear here. And this is really important to remember within the church. This does not mean love like they are your brothers. It means love because they are your brothers. That this is a, a work grounded in the gospel 
by the blood of Christ where you are truly a brother and sister with those who are in the church. In 1 John 3.14, you can just listen. This is what the, the sets the Christian apart. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And as we look at a text like this, we should really ask ourselves and, and the, these questions and really apply it. Questions like, am I loving with a sincere love? Am I loving with this brother love that this describes? Or have my affection for God's people grown dull? Have I let bitterness somehow take root in my heart? And I don't pretend that it's an easy thing to turn from this sin, to turn from this dull heart. But we need to remember that Christ's death and resurrection is what empowers us to turn from all bitterness. It's what empowers us to, to love in this way. Anyone who is, is married or, or lives in another house with humans knows it's not just about trying harder and fixing things. That's not how we get to a place where we're genuinely loving. We need this, this pure love, this love that, that purifies. Apart from God's word, we are ineffective at loving the way that, that he has intended us to. The love that we should all have comes from a, sur- a soul purified by the gospel, a soul that seeks the best interests of others, And as we'll see, and this is the the second point there on your handout, the gospel results in mutual love. The gospel results in mutual love. Looking at the later part of verse 22, this is what it says. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So I am no expert in Greek, but it's helpful to know this, that the love that is described in this section is different from the love that was just described. The first love is a love that refers to the love that someone has for their natural brothers and sisters, a brother love, and this love is the love that's described from a pure heart. This shows the emotional aspects of love, the the affections of love, and it's a love that desires the absolute best for the other person despite the cost. This love should not be one-sided within the church. That's where we get that mutual word from. It says, love one another. This love coming from the heart means it's coming from the believer's inner being. The thoughts, the feelings, the will. It means love earnestly from a pure heart. It means that we are loving with nothing held back. We're loving at full capacity. But what a, what a temptation it is to love cautiously, to hold back because people are, are hard or maybe because of, I don't know, painful experiences in other churches or with other believers or family or whatever it is. And, and we even we go into the church with God's people and we have this guard up. Fear of getting involved, even in ministry, because of what it could lead to. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to get hurt. That's not loving earnestly with pure heart. That's not loving at full capacity. It's not loving as Christ's love, can you imagine if he held back? Even at all. Christ being both God and man, it means that, that we could forget this, right? He felt the desire to pull away from pain, from suffering, but he didn't. When Jesus was about to accomplish salvation on the cross, Luke twenty two forty four 44 says, and being in 
agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus felt that pull, the pain of anguish, and so much more than we ever could, but he proceeded to give his life for his enemies, for people who hated him. When we see a command to love one another, we should gladly take on the burdens of our Christian brothers and sisters. We should gladly take on the risk of being sinned against. And this is a picture to the outside world of what Christ looks like. The gospel results in mutual love. And moving on in our outline here, we also see the gospel is better. The gospel is better. It's better than all the things in this world that compete for our hope, that make us worry, that give us concern. And let's look at verse 23, and we're going to stop here at 23, but we're going to go all the way through 25 eventually. Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. So stopping right there, this goes back to to verse 3, where Peter said, if you look just right up in that chapter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, we are seeing the work of the gospel, of regeneration. It purifies the soul and the heart. And here, Peter points to the fact that the believer has been born again. And it shows that this birth is better than the first. It's not with an imperishable seed, but one that lasts forever. Believers have been redeemed with Christ's precious blood, which far outweighs the treasures of this world. So Christians love because they have been regenerated to love as God's children. And if we keep going down in the text, we see the means by which that happens. And if you continue down, it says, through the living and abiding word of God. Abide here speaks to the imperishable quality of God's word. The seed is the word of God, his gospel message. And 1 John 3, 9, it's such a helpful description of this seed. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sitting for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The new life of the believer brought about by the seed, to borrow Peter's words from earlier in the chapter, are imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And yet, despite this, right, this is a lot of wonderful truth. This is good, right? Everyone in here, amen, we agree with that. But how often are we prone to wonder, right, to to hope in other things, to not, maybe we're like, up here, we're acting, yes, I believe this, but practically, Right? Our affections were not there. We are, we're, our hearts cling to things and, and people, or maybe we're crippled by fear. And this is how Peter res- responds here in verse 24. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass wither, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So let me just say that when I was assigned this passage and I read this specific section, right, this section here, the grass withers and the flower falls, I thought, this is good. I was happy to be assigned this section 
Later on in the summer, I'm assigned a section that's supposed to be one of the hardest New Testament sections to interpret in the New Testament. We'll get to that. But this one, I just read it, equally profitable, just to be clear. But this one, I read it, and I was like, man, this is so good. I'm so thankful. And I, and I thought, you know, I need this. I know they need this. Whoever listens to this sermon certainly will need to hear this. So here, it's helpful to know that Peter is quoting Isaiah 46 and 8. When we see that, right, we see that in our New Testament, we shouldn't be afraid to, to flip back and look at what he's quoting, right? I will say that the wording's a little different. We could, we could talk about that, but it's just a, a bit of a paraphrase. So Peter using Isaiah to support his claim shows us a couple of things, right? It, it shows us and it supports his claim that God's word lasts forever, not just because of the content, but because of the fact that he is using Isaiah, right? He's showing that this scripture of Isaiah is eternally profitable. So if you would like to turn back in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, we're just going to look at verses 6 through 8. It's a helpful exercise to, to, to do the work, right? To study our Bibles, to not just push through it. But when we see a reference in the New Testament of the Old Testament, to go back and to look at what he's talking about. So as you're turning there, uh, you know, we can gather from the context, and this is something we could all do. You just read around, and you can figure out what's going on. In Isaiah 39.6, we figured out that Hezekiah was just told that after his lifetime, everything that he has, all of his treasure, Israel, taken away into Babylon. It says, nothing shall be left. So as Israel is likely intimidated by these other strong nations, feeling hopeless, By the inspiration of God's spirit, this is what Isaiah says in verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord, our God, will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. So God's word has eternal value. Just like Israel looking at other powerful nations or the ruthless persecutors that Peter's audience would have been familiar with, hope is centered in the gospel. To put it simply, God and his word are better than grass. It's too often that we either captivated or, or paralyzed by grass. It sounds silly, but how often is our hope replaced with hope in our life circumstances? Things like our health, our relationships, education, all of which are just an idolatry of self. All things that are, in fact, change the wording a little bit here, perishable, defiled, and fading. Peter just puts it bluntly. All flesh is like grass. He's saying, All human existence is like grass. Sure, it lasts longer than grass, but its end is the same. Any persecutor, oppressive leader, or person in our life that has potential to cause us harm, but at the end of the day, they are grass. The other night, I was reading this. We can just listen here. I was reading Psalm 49. I just thought, man, this is so beautiful how this describes this, and Scripture does that. It helps you understand different parts of of the Scripture says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. 
For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, for his glory will not go down with him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise and you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. All flesh is like grass. Human existence does not last. If you want more than a false hope, than a, a, a clever deception of joy, more than just temporary beauty, you must center yourself in God's word. Right? Peter, when he's speaking to his audience, they would have been well familiar with the dry season, the flowers fading. I mean, we can relate to that in Bakersfield. But he's showing that human life that we are now living fades away. And not only that, but the glory fades away. It says, in all its glory, like the flower of the grass. Again, sometimes we practically live as if glory is not going to fade away when it is. Man's achievements, wealth, talents, these things, they're not worth putting our hope into. Psalm 49 puts it plainly. His glory goes down with him. Uh, my wife, right there, she loves flowers. Um, and we always have them on our, on our counter. We, she actually pointed out to me this week that we have this same verse. I didn't even think about it as I was, I was studying. We have this verse next to this, this flower in a pot, and the flower is always withering. Um, it's in our windowsill. And, and, and a lot of the time, we'll, in our kitchen island, we'll take, we'll take flowers, either someone gave them to us or something. We have them in the middle of the, the island. And one day, we, we took them from the backyard, and we put them in the middle of the island. And my son, who just learned how to say pretty, he says, like, pui. He, uh, he reached over, and he likes to touch him, you know, with his chubby little baby hand. And when he did that, it was like the next day, the whole thing, just all the flower petals just went onto the ground. When you hope in anything apart from God and his word, it's like those flower petals that just were destroyed in my son's chubby little baby hand. And it might sound silly because it is. It's folly to trust in those things something that does not last. And I don't, want to, I don't want to be misheard here. It's beautiful. It's, it's good. It can be good. And it's, it's meant to be enjoyed and to give God glory, right? A flower is something that gives God glory. But it is a poor substitution for our ultimate hope. Peter doesn't just say this uh, to, to bum out his audience, though. He is writing to a people who are suffering for Christ, and they, they're losing a lot to do this. It's a big cost for them. He is giving them hope and not a false hope. How easy is it when we face trials to, to put our hope in the, in the flowers and the grass, but Peter is putting their hope in something concrete, something more concrete than, than doctors or the promise of a steady income or anything like that. And as it relates to the command to love each other, he's giving them the mechanism, the means by which they are actually able to do that, to have this love that is centered in the gospel. And it's also good to note that this is something that we need in the church. We need to have this mutual love. We need to have it for unity. The love that is within Crossway needs to be centered in the gospel, in the unfading and imperishable work of Christ. If we look to anything else for our hope, 
and change, we won't live or love as we should. Because the false hopes of this world, as cleverly as Satan can package them, they won't last. But as Peter says, verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This refers specifically to the gospel. The gospel is better. The Lord refers to Jesus Christ. Peter is addressing these people facing persecution that most of us, we would struggle to understand what they would go through. And it's better. It lasts forever. It's the source and means of new life. And finally, Peter ends this section, last point there. The gospel is for the church. The gospel is for the church. It says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter is reminding this suffering group that the gospel they heard is the means by which God purified their souls and their hearts. While everything else fades away, this word, the gospel they heard, it lasts forever. Out of this word being preached, churches were established and hearts were regenerated. To you means to, or we can understand it as you all, it means that they, they received it. And we, we need to note here that he's telling them to think about it. He's telling them to consider it. He's calling them back to remember the gospel. Peter certainly doesn't support the false view that you hear the gospel once and then you get saved and then you move on to other things. That's a false view. The gospel is our foundation. God's eternal plan that was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that will be accomplished was for the sake of these believers in Asia Minor and every believer that hears these words. The gospel should never be put away. It's never something that we move on from. It was for Christ's church to be established, but it's also how the gospel is something we need to hear over and over again. Um, a really, really great book is, uh, it's called, uh, you know, the, the audiobook man calls it gospel primer, but people also call it gospel primer. Um, it's by uh, Milton Vincent. It's a very short good book, a good book. Um, so I, I read it once, and I started going through it with two different guys. I, I, you know, I gave it to my mother. I was like, this is a book that, that people need to have in their hands. So I can't recommend it enough. And it's good because like any good Christian book, it, it aids in the understanding of Scripture. His main argument is that Christians should rehearse the gospel to themselves every single day. He backs this up with the fact that, you know, in the Scripture we see that Paul, you know, when he was going to Rome, he intended to preach the gospel to people who were already Christians, right? So the gospel should not be cheapened to some cheap invitation at the end of a sermon, right? The gospel is something we need to hear over and over and over again, right? Too, too often we can think, oh, the gospel, oh, Jesus died for my sins. That's something that I needed back. Well, no, it's something you need every single day. Um, and we see this in the scripture, Right? Ephesians 1 through 3, gospel. Colossians 1 and 2, gospel. When Peter ends by saying the good news that was preached to you, it affirms the fact that the gospel is something that we need for the continual foundation as we are living the Christian life. In different ways throughout this section, Peter is reminding his readers that the gospel was not just the means by which they were saved, but the means by which they are able to love genuinely. The fact that 
This is, this is really good. Think about Ephesians 6, right? They're called to put on the armor of God. That tells us something. That tells us that we don't wake up ready. This is something we actively need to do. This is something that we need to, to, we need to rehearse the gospel truths to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of what Christ did to be equipped to face the temptations of life. For the person who is struggling with the weight of guilt, the gospel is a reminder that God's wrath has been removed from you completely. For someone who is truly saved, fellowship can be broken, but when Christ took God's wrath for believers, he took all of it. That means that God's not angry at you if you're truly in Christ. That's something important to remember. When we remind ourselves of our sin against God and how generous he has been to forgive us, what a motivation that is to love others as Christ has loved, to love others, as Peter says, earnestly from a pure heart. That's gospel-centered love. And it's not natural to us. It's supernatural. And we must remember the work of Christ, the love of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, in order to grasp this love and apply it. Something I would also say is that the gospel it exposes our pride. When we consider that Christ had to die, someone had to die for you. You were so bad, someone needed to die in your place. It took the sacrifice of God's own son. It was absolutely necessary for our forgiveness of sins that there be an atonement. And we can all relax a little bit when we want to appear as if we don't sin when we go to church. On, on wanting to, um, to appear as if we've become Christian masters. Yes, we'll sin less, but we'll never be sinless. Our sin required a death sentence that Christ paid, and we must die to ourselves as we identify with him. Jesus died because of our sins. So, when it's our turn, I don't know, Thursday night, Friday morning, whatever it is, and it gets to our turn in the prayer circle, we don't need to say, I'm good. I don't need prayer. We all need prayer. First John 8, uh, 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This doesn't mean that we have a, a license to sin or some kind of an excuse, but it is a reminder to confess it, to humbly admit when we go with other believers that we are, that we are sinners, that apart from Christ we have no righteousness. Being reborn by God's imperishable seed, it does mean that we're no longer bound to sin's power but we still struggle against our old nature, right? Until we're in Christ's presence, we'll not be without sin. Well, the work of regeneration is final, but the process of sanctification, it calls us to consider the gospel and to preach it to ourselves. When we truly meditate on the gospel, on Christ's work, when we remind ourselves daily, when we don't just, again, read God's word like an oversized runner trying to get through a race, then it makes our battle against sin easier as we consider the gospel, as we're rooted in it. We will never 
cease from sinning, but we, again, we can sin less. Our love of self and our focus on created things, on the grass of this world, you'll find they get smaller and smaller and smaller as your hope is centered in the gospel. And we'll love God's people more. We will have a gospel-centered love. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to apply your gospel, to consider the way that you have purified our souls, the infinite value of your word compared to the false treasures and false hopes. Give us knowledge as we open your word and, and read it. If anyone here has not acknowledged their desperate need to be purified and redeemed by the blood of your Son, I pray that they would. I pray that you would use the good news to reveal the folly of hoping in the grass of this world. Please continue to open our eyes to see your gospel, your call to come and repent of sins and trust in your Son's death and resurrection. Thank you for the final work of Christ. You know, Lord, that we are like dust. And our days on this earth are like the grass, but your love displayed in Christ is everlasting. Help Crossway to be a church where love abounds and the gospel is proclaimed faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. You guys are dismissed.